Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and colleague, Derek Davison. And Hark, who goes there? It's the news. Derek, why don't we start with a Ukraine update? Uh, sure. So uh, I, first, I'd like to say hello to the news uh, for, uh, for, for showing up. Thanks. Something's rotten um, in the state of news. <laughs> there you go. Uh, uh, so there's a I got him, of, I got him, folks. He left. That was a real it. laugh. Got it. Uh, all right. So we got a couple of updates uh, on Ukraine. One is a uh, diplomatic update. The other is a war fighting update. Uh, we'll start with the diplomacy. Uh, there were a couple of pieces uh, over this week that uh, one in the Washington Post, one in the Wall Street Journal, seemingly you know sort of. Uh, anonymous government insiders blabbing to the news or leaking to the news. The one on Saturday from the Washington Post uh, reported that the Biden administration has been, uh, I'm going to quote from them here, privately encouraging Ukraine's leaders to signal an openness to negotiate with Russia and to drop their public refusal to engage in peace talks unless President Vladimir Putin is removed from power. Uh, so that's one. Then on Monday, uh, the Wall Street Journal reported that the Biden administration itself, in the form of National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, has been in pretty consistent contact, apparently, with the Russian government in recent months, despite the war, to sort of minimize or, or to try to minimize the possibility of escalation. Uh, they talked, for example, about how the United States might respond to to Russia using a nuclear weapon in Ukraine, at least this is according to the, the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, as Sullivan conveyed the message that this would be regarded as a, as a major step forward and would be responded to in kind. Uh, I'm not saying that's why the Russians haven't used a nuke in Ukraine. I don't think there's a good case for using one anyway, but uh, they are in contact. Uh, I mention these things because I've been reliably told by various serious people over the last several weeks that uh, any form of negotiation is, in fact, enslaving oneself to Vladimir Putin and should don't be avoided subtweet at all me cost. on the pod Derek how dare you uh, <laughs> so I think it's interesting that these things are going on now I, I will say the uh, encouragement uh, that they they're they're supposedly providing to the Ukrainian leaders to uh, kind of signal an openness to negotiate is not necessarily because the Biden administration is trying to jumpstart uh, peace talks or anything like that. It is mostly, it seems like for show, uh, it's intended to uh, help. It's it's advice. It's it's They're advising the Ukrainians to appear to be the reasonable party here, the more reasonable party, the party that's interested in ending this conflict as soon as possible, uh, to portray the Russians as intransigent. And this is a message that would be sent mostly to European countries that may be, you know, especially over the winter now that they've uh, kind of all agreed to to cut themselves off from a lot of Russian energy or have taken steps that have resulted in Russia turning off the spigots uh, to keep them from wavering, to keep them from thinking, you know, why are we doing this just to, to support uh, this Ukrainian government that doesn't seem interested in peace talks? So the the, uh, the goal is to show that we are interested in peace talks and, and you're backing the right side. Um, as far as the uh, direct contacts between the Biden administration and Russia, one outcome of that, in addition to 
maybe to the you know non-use of nukes in in Ukraine uh, is that uh, U.S. and Russian uh, negotiators may be meeting soon, according to uh, this was according to Reuters earlier this week uh, to talk about the resumption of nuclear. Uh, armament inspections or nuclear arsenal inspections under the terms of New Start. Uh, this is, this would be a very big deal. New Start uh, inspections were suspended uh, due to COVID initially, but then earlier this year the Russians announced that that uh, they were just withdrawing basically or, or uh, completely freezing their participation in the program uh, because Western sanctions and particularly travel sanctions had, uh, according to them, made it impossible for Russian inspectors to to do their work, and so it left the the deal very one sided. Um, this is this is a, a good just, thing. New start has to do to, with nuclear weapons. Sorry, just to clarify, right, it has to do with right. strategic quote nuclear. It, weapons. It is the yeah. only active treaty uh, moderating the size of the the Russian and U.S. nuclear arsenals. Uh, restarting the inspections, uh, which are basically compliance expe- uh, uh, inspections, the U.S. can inspect Russian stockpiles. The Russians can inspect U.S. stockpiles. It is uh, a very big deal. It would be a very good thing for this to to resume, especially because. Uh, you know, we're, we're very much at this point in the uh, window where you would hope to see movement uh, towards some kind of a successor treaty uh, being negotiated. So anything that, that could kind of bring some good faith back into that process uh, is, is uh, much appreciated. Uh, so that's the diplomacy uh, end. Uh, in terms of the military aspect, the Russians finally, it seems like, pulled the trigger on Wednesday uh, on evacuating much of occupied Kherson Oblast in southern Ukraine. Uh, for weeks now, there's been speculation that the Russians might pull their forces uh, that had been deployed on the western side of the Dnipro River uh, over to the eastern side where they can't be cut off, basically, from the rest of the Russian military. Uh, it sounds like they are doing that. They say they're doing that. Uh, they said, uh, you know, this was announced on Wednesday, Thursday, uh, they announced that they were actually beginning the evacuation. Uh, if they do pull back, it would leave the, that obviously that part of Kherson open to the Ukrainians, including Kherson City, which is the big prize here in, in this uh, part of the country. Uh, the Ukrainians aren't buying it yet, as far as I can tell. Uh, they, th- they believe that this is a trap. Uh, that the Russians are trying to sucker them in, either that they, they're they not actually going to withdraw or that they're withdrawing, but they're going to leave behind a heavily mined you know, and, and booby-trapped uh, city for the Ukrainians to walk into uh, with Russian artillery you know, not that far away on the other side of the river. Potentially, they could uh, you know, maybe sucker the Ukrainians into uh, kind of entrapping themselves there. Uh, so they're taking things fairly cautiously, uh, but assuming that that this is all legitimate, uh, it's it's the most significant development I would say since the the developments in Kharkiv back in September when the the Russians retreated from that province and, and the Ukrainians were able to to retake control of of much of it. So, Derek, there's been a lot of talk amongst the uh, I don't know strategic community, what have you, about this being related to winter coming um what do you think about that and i'm just curious what do you uh, to, to me the the fear of what's been going on is this sort of frozen cashmere-esque conflict could you frame what's going on in light of the winter and the i the potentiality of a frozen conflict 
Yeah, so the the position, the Russian position on the western side of the river was um, getting more and more indefensible by the day, basically, as the Ukrainians were advancing south. Um, there's no natural geographic feature that, that the Russians could rely on to, to kind of hunker down behind. Uh, so they were out in the open. The Ukrainians have been using their long-range artillery to, to do some damage to bridges and other things to, um, you know, prevent the Russian forces on the eastern side of the river from resupplying or reinforcing the folks on the west. So there was a real danger that they were going to be cut off at some point, um, you know, maybe even surrounded uh, and, you know, would be easily picked off. So uh, moving them uh, to the eastern side of the river uh, reduces the chances of, of a real military catastrophe of, you know, like losing uh, a very large number of soldiers. Uh, it also creates a more natural uh, uh front line basically uh, along the Dnipro river uh, that could you know the russians could theoretically hunker down behind that that front line I mean, it's a more defensible uh position which lends itself to the idea of trying to create a stalemate uh, especially over winter and trying to create a situation where there's no obvious place for the ukrainians to try to continue their advance in the south so i i think that's i think there is some some uh, logic to that or some logic to that speculation that this is what the uh, the Russians are trying to do. I've even seen pieces um, wondering if, you know, this is going to be the point where uh, the Russians try to, to seek a ceasefire because things will be uh, in this kind of stable-ish uh, stalemate situation. I, I have a hard time believing that the Ukrainians would be amenable to that talk right now. Um, but it's, it's not out of the question that, that the Russians could be hoping to, um, establish a durable front line that can be held in stasis essentially for, for an indefinite period of time. Yeah. Interesting. Why don't we move on to the UK and Northern Ireland? Uh, yeah. So I know listeners are, are interested in the, the topsy turvy world of Northern Ireland. The, the Northern Ireland power sharing agreement has collapsed, uh, get into why in a second uh the uk government extended uh on uh, uh i believe on wednesday yeah it announced an extension uh in its uh, essentially self-imposed deadline to hold a snap election now that the the power sharing agreement has collapsed it extended that deadline through at least march maybe april uh what's going on here is that back in february the democratic unionist party which is upset over uh, Northern Ireland's status under the post-Brexit uh, arrangement that the, the UK and the European Union reached, uh, which puts Northern Ireland really almost more economically, at least more in the European single market than in the UK itself. It establishes uh, the need for customs checks on things going back and forth between Northern Ireland and, and other parts of the UK. Uh, the DUP is very unhappy with this, and so they basically... Uh, announced that they were boycotting the power sharing arrangement back in February. Uh, there was an election in May. Uh, people, I'm sure, remember Sinn Féin did, uh, did well in that election. But the DUP's been recalcitrant. You can't form a government because of the nature of this power sharing agreement. It was impossible to form a government without the participation of all the major parties, and DUP is certainly one of them. Uh, so they continued their boycott. So that election in May didn't result in anything. 
um, over the last few weeks. It, they've hit deadlines by which, you know, there was supposed to be a government in place. There's supposed to be a, uh, a speaker election that never happened for part for the regional parliament. Uh, and so that's triggered this need to hold a snap election. The, the problem from the UK's perspective is that you can hold as many elections as you like until this Brexit issue is resolved. There's no reason to think that this, uh, that, that the Northern Ireland power sharing arrangement is going to click back into place and work because the DUP will just continue to, to boycott. You could do some things uh, to alter the power sharing arrangement, like make it so that the DUP doesn't, or and no one party has an effective veto uh, over everybody else. Uh, but that would, of course, weaken the DUP and, and strengthen uh, Sinn Féin at this point. And I don't think the UK government has any interest in doing that. Uh, what they're hoping uh, is that somehow by May or April, the uh, negotiators from the UK and the EU will be able to resolve Northern Ireland's status uh, and change it in a way that is uh, viewed as favorable by the DUP. Uh, I, I, it's completely unclear to me what they expect to happen. Uh, this has been a sore spot since Brexit, even before Brexit. It was identified as one of the things that, uh, you know, even before the, the official Brexit, when they were negotiating the agreement, it was uh, the agreement. It was identified as one of the things that was going to be really difficult for people to swallow. Uh, and there's just no other option. I don't think there's any other option besides restoring a hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland, which nobody wants to do because they're afraid of a return to the troubles. Uh, so I don't know. This is just going to be a, a, an ongoing thing, I think. And, and, you know, the UK government will eventually presumably have to hold an election here, but I don't uh, see any reason to think it's going to uh, fix anything. Derek, have you been watching The Crown? Uh, no. Oh, you should, if you want, you should watch it. It'll restore your faith in the UK political system. As oh, the, the, yeah, the, the efficacy of, of British <laughs> politics. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. If you're, if you're ever, if you're ever glum, <laughs> just do that. Um, okay, let's move on to, um, Afghanistan. And particularly, there was recently a report released by actual Friends of the Pod, responsible statecraft that Derek, why don't you talk a little bit about? Uh, yes. So, uh, this is a piece uh, that uh, Responsible Statecraft ran. It's, it's reporting basically on a lawsuit that's been filed by a nonprofit group called Save Our Allies. Save Our Allies is one of uh, several groups that have emerged since the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan, uh, founded uh, by military veterans, people who served in Afghanistan and served with uh, Afghan auxiliaries, translators, and, and, and so forth. People who should qualify for special visas to get out of Afghanistan now that their lives are, uh, uh, at risk because of the Taliban, uh, because of that past service. The U.S. government has done such a god awful job of taking care of these people, uh, processing their visa requests and, and getting them out of the country, uh, that these groups have, have popped up to try and uh, step in and, and do something to, to get these people out. Uh, they're being scammed, basically. The, the point of this lawsuit is that they're, they're like scammers have stepped in. They're taking money from these, uh, charities to say, and, and saying, oh yeah, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll organize flights. We'll get people out, uh, and then not doing anything. And that's, um, you know, I don't have a, a big comment here other than, uh, just to highlight, uh, how this is still ongoing. Uh, the U.S. government is, essentially betraying these people. I mean, these these people worked with the occupation force under the understanding that they would be taken care of if things went south uh, and they have not been taken care of and there doesn't seem to be much uh, inclination. Uh, I think the the responsible statecraft piece says uh, uh, the State Department's Office of Inspector General found that as of uh, this past May, 
uh, there were 325,000 unopened emails in the special uh, immigrant visa application email box. Uh, there are still 90,000 Afghans who are in the backlog of the SIV program. Uh, it's just appalling, uh, frankly. Uh, you know, as somebody who thinks the withdrawal was, was the correct thing to do, was long overdue, in fact, um, it, it's, it's appalling to see uh, these people treated this way regardless. And it's really just, I, I really would point people to our special episodes, the last two episodes, where, where we talked with people who actually experienced the invasion in a real sense. And, and it just really highlights the importance of being skeptical of American interventions, because the United States has just such a long track record of going in and and, le- and really being a 900-pound gorilla uh, and, and uh, screwing things up and then just leaving and doing nothing to... to basically restitute people whose lives they destroyed. So I just think it's important to really think of all American interventions in terms of this larger history. Yeah, I mean, we really are kind of just lumbering uh, behemoths in a sense. And it's, I mean, a part of it is um, the, the, the disconnect between uh, American rhetoric and American actions, which is more universal than, than just this. But I mean, you know, we go... Uh, to Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever with the, you know, uh, under the cover of we're doing this for the people of the region, we're going to, you know, liberate them and uh, do all these great things for them. We don't really give give a crap. We're we're there to fulfill U.S. national interests. And when those interests are fulfilled or not fulfilled and and it's better to leave, we leave. Uh, If they are, if we're fulfilling national interests, we sit there, we squat there like uh, as you say, the 900-pound gorilla just destroying everything on our path with no regard for anything uh, local. It, there's there's never any concern for, uh, you know, the people that are actually put in, in harm's way with these interventions. Thanks, Derek. Let's talk for a second about Israel-Palestine and what's been going on in light of the Israeli elections last week. And in particular, I would suggest people interested in that check out our special with Udi Greenberg, where we go into a lot of detail about the elections, um, what happened and why it happened. So, um, you know, coming out of last week's election is something that Udi uh, talked about with us. Um, the third largest party in the, the new session of the Israeli parliament is something called religious Zionism or the religious Zionist list. Uh, it is ultra right wing, uh, truly, you know, for as far right as Israeli politics have shifted uh, in the last several years, it is a new frontier in terms of uh, right wing parties playing uh, not just uh, you know, a role in politics, but but this party is the third largest and the the, the main partner for Benjamin Netanyahu as he uh, presumably forms his coalition is going to play a really major role in a way that that uh, I think will be somewhat unprecedented. Um, the party has uh, two leaders. It, it emerged. It was kind of a merger of of uh, a couple of parties, and the leaders of those parties are kind of co-heads of the religious Zionist list. One of them is uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir. Uh, the other one is Bezalel Smotrich. Uh, and because they are essentially key to Netanyahu's majority, they do have the capacity to dictate to some degree where they would like to serve in the new cabinet. Uh, this has raised, apparently, according to Barak Ravid, who's an Israeli reporter who writes 
uh, for Axios sometimes. Uh, this has raised concerns in the Biden administration about where these people are going to be placed. The administration has already suggested that it will boycott or uh, just ignore, basically, Ben Gvir. It won't work with him. Uh, he could wind up being Minister of Public Security. It uh, li- seems likely that he will wind up as Minister of Public Security in the new cabinet. As far as Smotrich is concerned, according to Ravid, the administration has warned Netanyahu not to name him defense minister. He's up for, uh, it sounds like, either defense minister or finance minister. Uh, and it, it, the administration is suggesting that it will refuse to work with him as well. Um, I, I find it very hard to believe that, that the Biden administration will boycott the Israeli defense minister. I think they're bluffing uh, to try and scare Netanyahu into putting Smotrich at finance or someplace uh, maybe even less sensitive. Uh, I, I, I have my doubts that it's going to work, but this is something to watch because obviously Netanyahu, uh, you know, was had really uh, for for U.S. Israel relations had pretty rocky relationship with the Obama administration, and of course Biden was vice president at that time. Um, it, it seemed pretty clear that the Biden administration wanted the other, you know, one of the anti Netanyahu coalition to to win this election to survive. So. Uh, you know, they're probably not looking forward to this net, net, new Netanyahu government that's probably on the way. Um, I, I don't, again, there's not going to be any substantive change to the U.S.-Israeli relationship, but it's it could be something to uh, keep an eye on for, uh, you know, some soap opera antics, if nothing else. Have you seen anything coming out in light of the American electoral results? Uh, no, I haven't seen anything. I mean, on, on this particularly, no, I haven't, uh, yeah, I seen haven't either. I really haven't seen much, uh, kind of foreign policy analysis, which makes sense. It's a midterm election. Uh, it seems like you're going to have a deadlock government, uh, which basically we already had anyway. Uh, and Congress doesn't have that much to do with foreign policy. So I don't know that there's going to be much difference. <laughs> what about those clowns in Congress? What a bunch <laughs> of clowns. What a bunch of clowns. What exactly. a bunch of clowns. Uh, all right, Derek, let's move on to Ethiopia. Uh, yeah, so there's some news about uh, the uh, Ethiopian peace deal, which we talked about um, previously uh, on a on previous episode of American Prestige. Representatives of the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front met on Monday in Kenya. They are still meeting uh, as of Thursday, as far as I know. I think they agreed to extend this session of meetings to basically start filling in the details about how to implement this peace deal that they reached earlier this month in South Africa. That that deal was notably missing anything like a roadmap or a you know list of a kind of detailed list of interim milestones. It, it was a, a, a top line type of document like the TPLF will uh, disarm. The Ethiopian military will move into these places. But uh, you know, nothing about like what steps are we meeting along the way or how are we checking to make sure this happens. Uh, so that's what they seem to be hashing out in South Africa. Um, they need to talk about the resumption of humanitarian aid, which, uh, you know, unfortunately should have happened, you know, six months ago, let alone, uh, you know, uh, still being delayed because they can't seem to work out the details. Uh, they're also likely going to be talking about uh, the third parties that have been involved in this conflict, one of which is Eritrea. Uh, Eritrean forces are in Tigray still. They were allied with the Ethiopians, but at this point, uh, they, you know, now that they're there, uh, it's unclear whether they're going to be interested in abiding by this peace deal that they had nothing 
uh, to do with negotiating. Uh, so that could be an issue. The second, the other third party that's been involved here are regional security forces uh, from Ethiopia's Amhara region, which are occupying um, what is legally still uh, Western Tigray. is a re- It's a region that uh, the Amhara and Tigray peoples have been contesting for quite some time. Um, you know, there are allegations that the TPLF kind of swiped it from Amhara when, when the TPLF was running Ethiopia effectively. Um, the Amhara regional government issued a statement on Monday evening via Facebook saying that uh, it is ready to fulfill its responsibility in terms of uh, implementing or seeing that the, the peace deal is implemented. It did not say anything uh, about the forces that it has uh, still in this Western Tigray region. So uh, I think that's still going to be a uh, uh, an issue that has to be worked out. Okay, Derek, uh, thank you for that. Why don't we move on now for the moment to Sudan? Yeah, there have been some developments, some interesting developments in Sudan. Um, uh, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, the leader of the Sudanese junta, gave a talk to a group of soldiers uh, on a military base uh, near Khartoum on Sunday in which he uh, acknowledged something that had been reported previously, that he is negotiating with civilian opposition groups around a new uh, drafted, apparently, new draft constitution for that would uh, govern Sudan's political transition uh, that would establish a civilian transitional government uh, and uh, basically the military would step away from politics. I don't know to how how far that would go, but the civilian transitional government, according to the reporting I've seen, would actually have oversight uh, over the military, which is a, a, would be a big deal if 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 it's true and if the military, you know, actually accepts that. One of the the issues with the transition as it is now, I mean, the military overthrew the civilian transitional government back in October, last October, um, and you know that civilian transitional government never really had any authority over the military anyway so this would be uh, a major change um you know we'll have to see obviously what comes of that uh there is a piece uh, by Gregory Aftandilian of the Arab Center he wrote a little um, uh, well it's it's not a little piece it's a fairly substantial one um speculating in part uh, about the reasons why the Sudanese military which has dominated politics for for decades really uh, why it suddenly seems uh, interested in stepping back from from that role. His argument basically is that the Sudanese economy is in such tatters uh, that the military doesn't want to be responsible for it anymore. And that because the international community, in particular the U.S. and the European Union, are refusing to step in and, and provide any aid or assistance as long as the military is, is running things, uh, that the, they've made the decision to... Uh, get out of politics to to because it's become more trouble than it's worth. Uh, Russia, which has be, been uh, traditionally the, the main foreign patron for the Sudanese military, is, of course, uh, has bigger fish to fry these days in, in terms of Ukraine and, you know, isn't in a position to help very much economically anyway. So uh, it may just be a cost-benefit thing. Interestingly, uh, Afghan Dillian's piece also speculates that maybe the Saudis are leaning on the, the Sudanese military. There is some uh, circumstantial evidence that that may be the case, possibly because they're unhappy with the way the military has been running things or unhappy with the state of the Sudanese economy, which affects Saudi investments in that country. So 
who knows? But, uh, you know, this may be the rare case where the Saudis are not being completely horrible. I don't know. How dare you say yeah, that about the Saudis, Derek? Uh, our, our best friends. So why don't we move on to what's sure to be a happy and positive topic to end on? And that is, of course, the Conference of the Parties of the UNFCC. C, otherwise known as COP27, the Climate Conference. Yes, so COP27 is ongoing in Egypt uh, this week. These conferences are always uh, fairly gloomy. Anatole, even actual friend of the show, wrote a, a piece about this at, uh, for Quincy. You you always get, you know, the first thing that comes out anytime, uh, every year when, when the, these conferences are held, is how far off the world, and I mean, you know, every country, every oil company, every gas company, every energy firm, uh, how far off they are from the pledges that they made, you know, uh, 20 years ago or whatever it's been now since Paris uh, to to rein in carbon emissions. And it's just... Hey, they you know, tried, I mean, Derek. Yeah, I mean, they, they tried. I haven't I consumed even a scintilla less than I have been, <laughs> but we tried. We tried really hard. We did. We tried. We, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. <laughs> um, you know, we're on we're on pace to, you know, blow through. Uh, the, the Paris uh, Agreement was supposed to keep uh, the planet to 1.5 degrees of warming or less by 2100. We're on pace for, uh, in the best case scenario, about 2.5 degrees of warming by 2100. Hey, that's and, not and quite that's, double. That's pretty that's good. What is that? Only 38 <laughs> percent. You know, something like that. Yeah, uh, that's that's probably not even feasible. But who knows? So yeah, it's 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 depressing. I I, I do want to say there have been a couple of uh, developments at this summit that I've noticed, and I'm not. Uh, we're gonna. I mean, we're gonna have Michael, Mike. I think uh, Mike Franzak on at some point uh, to talk about what's going on. But uh, um, and he. Oh, he I've is, been emailing uh, with Mike. We sh- I'm gonna. I'm gonna email him right now. I'll text him. He is, you know, expert in these things. I mean, he he can speak to, uh, you know, if there's anything really new going on here. But what I've noticed is that all of a sudden, after really fighting about this issue uh, at COP26 last year. Uh, Western countries are are willing now to discuss the idea of essentially paying reparations uh, to countries in the global south that are dealing with climate disasters, climate disasters caused by the developed world's uh, overuse of fossil fuels and wrecking the environment. They're not talking about it in the amounts that would be needed to really address the problem, but you've, we've seen a, a number of European countries make pledges of, you know, 5 billion euros here, or five, sorry, 5 million euros here, 170 million euros. It, it's the, I think Germany pledged to a climate fund. Um, it, it's sort of breaking the taboo. It's not, it's not a big uh, contribution, but, but it is kind of breaking the taboo. Of course, the United States uh, is not donating anything. Uh, the U.S. has always been uh, very opposed to this because it does verge on then becoming uh, like a, a, a perpetual reparations uh, thing once you kind of accept that the U.S., is the problem the U.S. has caused this problem? Uh, then the U.S. you know uh, becomes responsible for you know kind of paying back uh, the damage that it's done to the countries that are really facing climate impacts. Uh, the other thing that I will note uh, that seems to me to be somewhat of a new development is it seems they seem much more open 
to just kind of talking about what the problem really is, and that's fossil fuels instead of kind of dancing around the issue. Somebody issued, somebody put together a, a tool, a new tool to kind of track carbon emissions that was unveiled at this summit and found that emissions caused by oil and gas production, just sort of extracting it from the ground, could be as much as three times higher than previously believed. Uh, the 14 largest carbon-emitting sites on Earth are all related to oil and or gas extraction, the biggest being the Permian Basin in Texas. Um, and uh, that that seems somewhat new, just the, the ability to say these guys are the problem. The energy companies are the problem. Energy itself is the problem. Uh, fossil fuels are the problem. We have to do something about it. I'm not saying we are going to do anything about it. Uh, but there's always been this sort of uh, unwillingness to just be very frank about what what the issue is. And I feel like maybe that's changing a little bit too. But again, uh, we'd need somebody like Mike to come on and and uh, uh, and talk about that. The last thing I'll say, uh, you know, having uh, found out that the largest carbon emitting site on Earth is in Texas, uh, is I think we should flip the slogan. Uh, instead of saying, don't mess with Texas, we should say, could Texas please stop messing with the rest of us? Uh, that would be my, my suggestion. Eric, thank you so much. Everyone, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.